0: Uh, what the Bible Says About Church It was based on 1 Corinthians 12 I remember going back over my notes We learned from that sermon The church is a body, not a building The church is a team sport, not an individual sport church follows Christ, not some personality And importantly, the church is covenantal Not consumeristic That is to say, it's more like a marriage and less like McDonald's. When we think church, we learned, we need to think members that belong to one another, not an institution that we attend. And at the end of that sermon, you might remember, I challenged our elders to think carefully about how we can better capture this in our practice. So the elders started praying and discussing about that for over a year. And in the end, we decided the best course was to adopt a new covenant of fellowship that we could affirm regularly as a church together. And then we brought that plan to you as a church. And the church voted to adopt that new covenant of fellowship this past February. And so next Sunday is an exciting moment because it's going to be the first time that we collectively affirm our new covenant of fellowship. You should have received one of them when you came in. They're right there for you to look over in preparation for next week. But in view of all that, I thought I'd take this Sunday to preach on that covenant, what it is, why we're affirming it. And to that end, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 you're using the Bible and the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 977, Ephesians 4, 1-6, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can be seated as we pray. Father, as we come to you, we're aware it's a unique Sunday, a break from our time in Galatians to consider this covenant we'll be affirming together next week and all its implications. I'm aware, Father, as, as we come then with that on our minds that uh, we still want it to be your word that's governing everything. We need for even us to understand this and to feel the weight of it and to feel the goodness of it. We need your spirit to be working. There's a lot of things that could be misunderstood, so I pray that you bring clarity there. Give us all hearts to listen and understand. Help me to be clear. Father, it's our collective prayer that you would use this sermon as you intend in our lives. So we're asking for a work of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. My parents grew up in Chicago during the 1960s, which means that they were there during the racial tensions that were prevalent there, and the race riots. My mom tells the story of when she remembers the school principal coming over the intercom saying, everybody, just leave, get home as safely and as quickly as possible. She grabbed her protractor in case she would need it on the way home. Every man for himself, more or less. Racial tensions were everywhere. Except for on the Morgan Park High School football team, where my dad was quarterback. There, forged on the practice field... And on the battlefield of the gridiron, blacks and whites had formed a brotherhood, and they were united. It was the one place where those racial tensions weren't present, that common cause and bond united them. In a certain sense, you could say, compared to what was going on more broadly on the south side of Chicago, they had a better or more noble community than what was around them. So what's interesting is when things were particularly tense in the high school, the football team would be called out of class. And one black member and one white member of the football team were paired together to patrol and to walk the hallways. The idea being not only because they were together they could kind of diffuse any fights, but just conveying a sense of the unity that should be there. That it would be contagious and spread to the rest of the school. When I think about that picture, I think that's a little bit what the church is called to be. We live in a broken, strife-filled world. And in the midst of this broken, strife-filled world, we're called to walk the streets arm in arm and point people to something greater, a better unity, a better hope, a better kingdom. But the unity we share is much more profound than what the Morgan Park High School football team shared. Because our unity is formed by a common transformation. Our hearts have been changed. And so we have a new King, Jesus, who reigns over us. So as I preach on the covenant of fellowship this morning, what I'm really talking about is what it means to be that kind of church. What it means to be an outpost of God's kingdom here on earth. And I'm going to do that in two ways. Briefly, I'm going to take a little bit of time in the book of Ephesians just so we can see the beauty and power of what we just read in Ephesians 4, 1-6. But the bulk of our time, I'm going to be explaining the covenant of fellowship. Now, I want to just tell you this up front. In order to explain the fellowship well, I'm going to have to explain three different concept, concepts that are, are going to require fuller explanation because they could be easily misunderstood or misconstrued. Maybe they're a little confusing. So at three different points along the way, as I move through, I'm going to pause, and I'll tell you when I do that to give you just kind of a fuller explanation of something that could be confusing. But let's begin with the book of Ephesians. I want us to see the beauty and power of what we read in 4, 1 to 6. You see, the church in Ephesus was struggling. They weren't struggling in terms of who they were as a church, but they were looking out and they were seeing Paul, their apostle, imprisonment, some of their own suffering, and they were going, wait, I thought God was the powerful one who seated on the throne. What's going on here? So they're questioning. Is there really power? Does God really have the power? And so God inspires Paul to point them, in answer to that, to point them into the profound reality of their church. You really get a sense for this in chapter 2. In chapter 2, 1-10, to 10, the first reality he points them to is how they were dead. They followed the course of the world. They're blowing with the world. They were under the sway of the spirit of disobedience, living out the passions of their flesh, doing whatever it was their bodies desired. They were dead. But then Christ came along. Because of His death on their behalf, He was able to give them a gracious gift. They were made alive. They were reconnected to God, given new natures, freed from their slavery to sin. Now as you'll see as you read the book of Ephesians, that doesn't mean that they were suddenly perfect. But something profound had changed in them and it was something only God could do. He said, you want to see power? Look around you. A gospel transformation. And it's true of us too. You want to see the power of God in this day and age? Look around you. Think of the baptisms we've seen over the last few years. Think of people you know in the pew whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. We in this room know we know what it means to be enslaved to darkness, held captive by the prince of the power of this air or of our day. Some of us were under the grip of despair, even suicidal. Some of us Addicted, addicted to sex, or addicted to substances. Some of us were self righteous, self reliant. Some of us were man pleasers, living for the affirmation of others at all costs. And we know that's the case even us who've been believers for a long long time, because the remnant of that old man inside of us is still pulling us back to that old darkness. But what did He do? He freed us. He's forgiven us. And He's even changed our desires. Not that we're perfect, but we are transformed people. That's that's what Paul's saying in two one to ten. Then in two eleven through twenty-two, he gives a second point. Not only were you dead, now made alive, but he says, You were Jews and Gentiles with this big dividing wall of hostility between you, and now you're united. You're one new humanity. People who would otherwise have nothing to want, would want nothing to do with one another, have now been united. Because of Christ's work, we're now formed into one new humanity, one unified people that together, he says, make up a temple, the dwelling place of God on this earth. That is a profound reality, and it's true here too. We have Russians and Germans in this room. Indians and Pakistanis. Africans and Dutch even Canadians and Americans, (laughs) all worshiping the same God together. Men and women. Farmers and businessmen. Singles and marrieds. Young and old. Proletariat and bourgeoisie. Habs fans and Leafs fans. I mean, where else in Ontario would you see such a diverse group that has such unity? I'm not sure there's any other place because this unity is wrought by the Spirit of God. If you're an unbeliever here and you're visiting, just take note of that. Think about all the different types of people you see in this room. And yet the unity we share... That must say something. What could create that that can't be created anywhere else? So when Paul writes chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, it's not some weary apostle going, oh, can't we all just get along? He's actually stirring up and already transformed people to live out their calling. He's already said, God's power is so evident in you. He's given a prayer glorying in that in chapter 3. And now he's telling us, you are something special, something unique, so live like it. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit, the bond of peace, Powerful. It's beautiful the picture he's presenting. An outpost of God's future kingdom on display in this present time. We're walking the hallways together. And that's the backdrop for looking at our covenant of fellowship. Our covenant is simply a way to show that we belong to one another that we're more than just a collection of individuals who file in and out of a building that we share a deeper and more profound unity one lord that means one king one faith one baptism and when you read this there's at a certain level there's nothing spectacular or extraordinary about our covenant no secret rites no club handshakes that this teaches you no trademark hats that we're all going to have to wear you know I, it sounds like i'm joking and i am somewhat but that's like when when groups form apart from the spirit they have to do stuff like that it actually is how they form unity they have stuff like that but all we're saying in this covenant is what's true of every christian through history around the world It's basically just saying, yes, I'm a Christian. And yes, I want to do church with the rest of you. That's all we're saying. Nothing else. It's really simple. It doesn't have to be something special or extraordinary. Because what unites us is what is spectacular. We've all been transformed by Jesus. We've been given new hearts. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light so that we can declare His praises. That is remarkable. And all the covenant's doing is trying to capture that. The covenant is something that should be true of any Christian, and therefore any Christian should be able to say it. And as we were drafting that as elders, it's really important to us. We we drafted the covenant of fellowship so that it was something, we wanted to be something that could be, that any true believer could affirm. I'm just going to say that again, a little bit slowly, so you know it's important. We believe that any true Christian should be able to affirm the covenant of fellowship. Now, I'm, I'm belaboring that point for a reason because it carries an important implication. And this is the, the first thing. Remember, so there's three things that require some fuller explanation. This is the first thing. Because this covenant is something that any true Christian should be able to affirm, moving forward, Only those who can affirm it are going to be able to serve at Maple Avenue. What? That's so undemocratic. Shouldn't anybody be able to serve who wants to? Why are you making rules about who can serve? Well, I want to be really clear about something. Our church's doors are wide open to anyone, to everyone, You are welcome here. This is a place for all who need rest. All who are interested in hearing about the good news of Jesus, exploring what Christianity is about, everybody is welcome here. But you have to understand, the church, you might think the church is some institution. It's not an institution. It is a people. It is the body of Christ made up of all true believers who are united together in this place. So in what we do as a church, it should be the church that's doing it. Let me use the metaphor of a body. You can't be the hands of the body if you don't belong to the body. You can't be the body's kidneys if you don't already belong to the body. Or to use the football analogy, you can't walk the hallways if you haven't bought into the racial unity of the football team. You see, we're not just a civic club. We are a collection of people who've experienced a common transformation, who follow a common king. And our task together isn't just to get stuff done at the church to fill a slot for a worker, because we need to get that done so we can make our busyness a little busier. What we're doing when we go about the work of the church is trying to point others to the greater kingdom that's yet to come that we have become a part of because we belong to Jesus. So God's design is that service within the church is done by those who are followers of Christ. If you read on in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says just that. How does the body grow? It says the people who are part of the body love and serve one another. It's the body itself that serves. And so, our way of trying to live that out is by saying that to serve at Maple Avenue, one needs to be able to affirm the covenant of fellowship. Now, we're not going to be all Gestapo like in the enforcement of that. There'll be exceptions. Right now, there's going to be a period of kind of grandfathering. This is kind of the first time for some that they're hearing this. We're not, there's a spirit of grace. Love, mercy, long-suffering here. And if, if you can't affirm the covenant, the last thing I want, the last thing any of us wants is for this covenant to push you away. We wanted to show you the beautiful community that we share and invite you in. We're glad you're here. And I am committing to you that you will continue to be loved, welcomed, supported, embraced. So that ends my first fuller explanation. You can see why I thought that was important to take a little more time on. But with that, I want to look at the covenant paragraph by paragraph. So we usually just have our Bibles open. I feel really weird, but you'll want to have this out as well. Um, Just so you know, all this is, a lot of the languages here is taken verbatim from Scripture. Otherwise, it's other parts in. Other portions are summarizing a few different concepts in Scripture. All the Scripture references are available. There's a a document in the back that has that all in there. If we include it in this document, it would be a lot longer and harder to follow. But uh, if you want to take the time between this week and next week, all those Scripture references are there, so you can look them up and understand them. So this isn't, we're hoping as much as possible, it's not inspired Scripture, but it's based on inspired Scripture. First paragraph. The first paragraph is designed to say, I'm a Christian. If you want to write it on there, you can even do that. First paragraph, I'm a Christian. You'll notice the words there, we believe that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and we repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Those are the words we ask anyone who gets baptized in our church to affirm. That's what we're asking. If you're going to, That's what it means to be a Christian, to be able to affirm those things, because there's two elements to it. We're affirming what the gospel message is, and we're affirming the saving response to the gospel. What's the message of the gospel? What's the saving response to the gospel? So the basic message of the gospel, we take right from 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins. He didn't just die, he died to atone for our sins and he was buried and that he was raised he really did rise from the dead he didn't just deal with sins he actually conquered death so he did something on the cross he rose from the dead and that language is taken like i said right from 1 Corinthians 15 then the right response to the message is twofold repentance and trust that language of repent and trust or repent and believe is right from is shaped by mark chapter 1 but we've kind of trust in Christ alone. We've added that because a lot of the rest of the teaching in the New Testament talks about how there's salvation in no one else besides Jesus. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Those kind of things. So, let me just talk about those words. Repent and trust. Repentance means to turn. It means a changing one's mind, changing one's direction. It's turning. So you're, we all naturally are moving towards our sin and repentance means to turn away from that. This is what it means to be a Christian, but it's not something you just do at one point in time and then you're done. Repentance is a daily struggle because our old flesh keeps saying, No, let's go back to that. So you have to kind of keep repenting and keep turning away. So we repent of our sins. And then the other word is we trust. We trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. You want to understand the word trust. You can think of somebody looking at a chair and telling somebody, Oh, oh this chair right here, it's a very stable chair, it's well made. If you look at it, you can tell the bolts are solid, good, sturdy chair. Well, that, that's actually not trust in the chair. Trust in the chair is actually to sit in it. That shows that you actually trust that it's a well-made chair. So to trust Jesus, maybe you can think of the word entrust. We're entrusting ourselves to him, our salvation to him. And to no one else. We're not entrusting our salvation to our own efforts. If I'm just good enough, I can just get to that level where I'll please God. If I just try and be a Christian hard enough, I'll reach the level where I'm a mature enough Christian that I'm actually okay with God. Or I'll do these rites that I did when I was a baby, or I do at some point in my life, or some turning point, I'll do these rites and that makes me a Christian. No, none of our efforts. It's only Christ's work alone. We trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. So, In its simplest forms, that's what a Christian is. Someone who has entrusted themselves to Christ. Someone who believes that gospel message. Now you'll notice in this section, there's an additional sentence under the first paragraph of what it means or that I'm a Christian, saying I'm a Christian. And it's this additional sentence that's going to be my second fuller explanation. Let me just read it. it. Because of this, we are members of Christ's body, which we've signified by our baptism. Because we are Christians, we're we're members of Christ's body, which we've signified by our baptism. Now I said that our goal in this covenant is to make the standard of fellowship that we have identical with the Bibles. Or to put it differently, if we'll be together in heaven... We should be able to fellowship together on earth. So why do we require people to be baptized in order to affirm this covenant? After all, didn't the thief on the cross go with him that day to paradise even though he wasn't baptized? Are we now adding a work that you must do in order to be saved? Well, let me answer that. It is clear and true from Scripture that baptism doesn't make anyone a Christian. That's why our wording is because of this. Not because of baptism, but because of our belief in the Gospel that we're members of Christ's body. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian any more than wearing a wedding ring. makes you married. But just like you show people you're married by wearing a ring, you show people you're a Christian by being baptized. And God has given us specific instructions to show show how we belong to Christ's body. If you want to show people that you're a Christian, if you want to show people that you belong to Christ's body, here's how you do it. He said, the way to show you belong to Christian community, the body of Christ, is by being baptized. And you see it all throughout the New Testament. Jesus' Jesus' final commissions to the disciples was to go and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say converting them. He says baptizing them because there's an assumption there. Jesus is saying the way you show you are a disciple is by being baptized. And even in our reading in Ephesians, it talked about how believers share one baptism. That is the sign God's given us to indicate we belong to God's body or Christ's body. And if that's the case, if that is the sign God's given, we don't, as a church, have authority to bypass it. So we actually wrestled a little bit as we talked about as elders. How do we want to deal with this? Because someone can be a Christian without being baptized, even though that's unnatural and weird. How do we want to deal with that? But we said, we have no business as the elders of this church to bypass the sign God's given and say, you can say you belong to this church through affirming a covenant when God has said the way you do it is by being baptized. It would be the height of arrogance to tell God we have a better way. We can't create our own criteria for being a part of this body. We must submit to His. So that's why it's in there. Now, I know that there are people in this room who I think are Christians, but who haven't been baptized. So, there's a handful of you. Can I I say a word to you? My guess is that you're being held back by wrong thinking. I know that's kind of a stepping on your toes a little bit, but I think what's probably holding you back if you're a genuine Christian and aren't being baptized is wrong thinking. Perhaps you think you have to reach some special level of Christian maturity or have some special level of faith in order to be baptized. If my faith meter gets X high, then I can get baptized. But that's not true. Biblically, baptism is the start of the journey, not some stop along the way. If you can affirm those two bullet points at the top of the page, you should be baptized. That's all you need. Or another area where thinking could be wrong. Perhaps fear is holding you back. It could be fear of water or fear of being in front of a crowd. Or fear of what your family might think. If that's the case, I just want to encourage you to talk to one of the pastors about that. We can help you as much as we can work through those fears. We may not be able to erase them all. But we can do what we can to help you move forward in obedience to Christ. Or a third way you might be thinking wrong. you, You might just might be that you just don't think baptism is that big of a deal. If it it doesn't make you a Christian, it's kind of optional, right? But that's not what Jesus taught. And you don't want your first act as a Christian to be disobeying Jesus' command and rejecting the sign that shows you belong to him. Maybe it could be That us requiring baptism in order to serve here is the jolt you need to clarify your thinking that baptism is important. Our next baptism class is going to be at the end of October. If you haven't attended one, I encourage you to come. Some of you have already attended one. I just say, talk to a pastor this week about getting baptized. If you got that ball in motion, I'll go ahead and say, in faith you can affirm this next week if you're planning on getting baptized, all right? But yeah, it's important. doesn't make you saved. But it is the sign God's given us to show that we belong to Christ. So that's, that's my second fuller explanation. You can probably tell why I thought I needed to pause on that one as well. It also ends my explanation of the first paragraph, which we summarize the, as an affirmation that I am a Christian. The next paragraph states... What we do as Christians. You can write that. What we do as Christians. What is it that we're all about? If we're Christians, what is it we do? It's pretty simple. I'll move quickly. Bullet point number one. We hold fast to the gospel and make sure its message, not some compromised version of it, is what gets passed to others. Bullet point number two. We submit to scriptures. We as Christians are a people under authority. The authority of Christ And He rules His church through the Word. So Christians are people of the book. And there's bullet point number three. We give ourselves to God's Spirit, allowing His influence on our lives to wax so that the influence of our sinful flesh can wane. And bullet point number four. We show our dependence on Christ by being a praying people. We pray on our own. And we pray with other Christians. And the last bullet point is that we seek to live in a way that shows others the goodness of the doctrine that we profess. Now, with all those bullet points, i got to say, none of us are going to be able to do all those things perfectly. It doesn't state, as individuals, individual members of Christ's body, we will perfectly, and then it says, we endeavor by God's grace. That means it's our heart's desire to do these things. We're trying to do these things, and we know we can't do it in our own strength. We need God's grace. But it's saying we're the football team walking the hallways, we're an outpost of heaven showing people how good God is. So we need to guard the gospel. We must allow God's Spirit to shape us. We want everyone to see our lives by our lives that we're changed people. That's what Christians do. That was paragraph two. The third paragraph says what we do as a church. So, if paragraph two is what we do as Christians, paragraph three is what we do as a church. Now, it's pretty clear from the Bible what Christians are supposed to do when we gather together. We're supposed to meet weekly around the Bible and encourage one another. We're supposed to share the Lord's table and baptism. And we're supposed to do so under elders or overseers. There's different words that have been used. But under elders and alongside deacons. With with very few exceptions. That's what every healthy outpost of Christianity, every Christian church has done throughout history. And that's just the first, second, and last bullet point in that section. The third bullet point needs a little bit more explanation. It's not one of my long explanations, but I just want to make sure we understand it. Because it talks about for the furtherance of God's kingdom. You See that phrase? See, one day Jesus is going to return and usher in the fullness of His kingdom. But until then... God's kingdom is growing here on earth, not in some sort of political way with you know, borders and an army and stuff like that. But it's growing because more and more people are embracing Jesus and following Jesus and saying, I want to follow him as my king. And it's growing, this is an important part, it's growing as in our own lives, more and more we are yielding ourselves to Christ's reign. So we're wanting God's kingdom's purposes to be advanced here at Maple Avenue by more people coming to Christ and by we ourselves growing more and more like Christ, right? So that's what we mean by the furtherance of God's kingdom. So we see that we do that first by loving, supporting, and bearing with one another. That's not just empty rhetoric. It's not just like, yeah, high-five each other at church and then go out the door and pretend like you know each other. This is inviting people into our homes. It's sharing our junk with each other so that we can carry burdens and pray for each other so people can speak into our lives. Recently, I was going through a hard season or just a hard couple of days, feeling really discouraged and was able to reach out to a few men in this church and say, I need your help and I need your encouragement. And the very things they prayed for me and the words they spoke helped me. We need to be able to be vulnerable with each other like that and be honest with where we're at. That's what I'm talking about there, or that's what we're talking about, loving, supporting, and bearing with another. And then it says, and giving of our time, talents, and resources. I started with a football analogy, another sports analogy. You the phrase, you gotta leave it all on the field. When you wanna leave it all on the field, it means when you're out on the pitch or whatever it is, you wanna give everything you've got. You don't wanna leave the field with regret saying, I could have played better, I could have worked harder, I could have tried harder in that situation. You wanna be all in when you're on the field so that if you do lose, you're like, hey, I gave my best. As Christians, we don't want to get to eternity and think, what was I doing with my life? The abilities God had given me, the financial resources or the resources of our uh, our home or whatever it might be, I was using that for myself. My time, that was just for me. No. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God will take care of all those other things. That's what we want to be. We want to be a people who's giving ourselves to the work here in every way, leaving it all on the field. There's a missionary named C.T. Studd that said, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So that's that third bullet point. So, taken all together... We gather weekly around the word observing the Lord's Supper and baptism and doing so under the elders and alongside deacons. All these things we're doing as a church community on the basis of community working together to advance his kingdom. That's what we do as a church. So we have a statement about a statement that I'm a Christian, a statement about what I do as a Christian, and a statement about what we do as a church. Last paragraph then. And this is where you begin to feel the weight of it all. Because here is where we're going to ask each other to hold us accountable for these affirmations. I've gotten to do a lot of weddings as a part of this church. I love weddings. It's just you see that I get the best seat in the house. I'm right there seeing every little expression on the couple's faces. It's just there's so much joy and beauty and celebration. The singing and the the, the, the uh, ceremony of people processing down an aisle and all of this. But there's a, there's a moment where everything just kind of slows down in the wedding ceremony. It's that moment when they say to one another, looking into each other's eyes, sometimes with a bit of a trembling voice, sometimes a bit of emotion there, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's holy plan till death do us part this is my solemn vow do you know how you feel in that moment when they say this is my solemn vow you feel the weight but it's a kind of weight that makes everything else so joyous it's like the most beautiful wonderful moment but it's a weighty moment this is not a marriage covenant This is not the same as a marriage. It's not the same type of thing. But if you compare this covenant to the wedding ceremony, this is kind of the vow portion. It's where you start to feel the weight of it. Because here we're saying that we want others to hold us accountable to these commitments. If we drift in our beliefs, our doctrine, we're asking the others in the church to pursue us to challenge us, to warn us, to get up in our face, to call us back. If we drift in our actions, how we live, we're asking others to pursue us and challenge us and warn us and call us back. It doesn't mean we're saying we want everybody policing every little area of detail of each other's lives like busybodies. But when there is clear sin in each other's lives, it's outward and it's continuing without repentance. We should want others to come and warn us and challenge us to get in our face. And this is where I want to give my third fuller explanation. And to this, we're back in the Bible, Matthew chapter 16, which is on page 823. Matthew 18, page 823. This is taught like three or four different times in the Bible. This is the clearest place. It comes from the teaching of Jesus. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector basically what Jesus is saying is the church has a job When someone's life or teaching is clearly out of line with how a Christian lives, this one's focused more on an action. Other portions will talk more about belief. But if it's out of line with how a Christian lives or what he believes, the church isn't supposed to go along with the parade just winking, yeah, 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 everything's okay. We are to lovingly and graciously convey the seriousness of what's happening to the person, and we do it in steps. First, you do it in private. In the world, what you do is you go talk to everybody else and you don't talk to that person. In Christianity, you do just the opposite. You don't go talk to everyone else, you talk to that person. And then if, if they're still not changed, then you want to have other people. So it's not just your blind, you know, narrow perspective. You want to say, are other people seeing this? So you, there's, you gather one or two or two or three others with you. Usually it's the elders of the church. A couple of the elders of the church or pastors, and you go with that person to confront them again and if they continue with time and with teaching and with prayer, they continue hard-heartedly to hold fast to their unhealthy doctrine or, or their unhealthy way of living, then at some point the whole church needs to be brought aware so that we can convey to the person that they're no longer part of the fellowship. Now, I want to be clear. All Christians sin. It's not saying you've got to live a perfect life. It was saying that none of us could belong to the church. But when Christians sin, we confess and turn to God in repentance. To deny the gospel by your life isn't just a sin. It's to keep on sinning with no care or regard for what that does to the name of Christ. So what we're asking here when we say this as we're telling others to pursue us and to pursue us enough that if God forbid we should go down a certain path, they won't maintain the charade that we're fine as part of the body of Christ. Now, only God knows the heart, and we know that. But we can communicate to you by saying you're not, you're not able to affirm this covenant anymore. And so you're not able to serve in, this, in our midst anymore. Treat them as a Gentile tax collector, it says. In other words doesn't mean you shun them and turn your back on them and make them wear a scarlet A on their chest or something like that. What, what, it, what you do is you treat them like an unbeliever. Say, you're welcome here. We want you to come here. This is the best. If you're struggling with sin, this is the best place you can be. But don't come and we're going to act like you're a Christian because you're not living like one. God alone knows your heart, but we're not going to give you the false assurance that you are. Does that make sense? So this is my last fuller explanation. Covenant's ending with a commitment that if we're to leave the church, or the last sentence says if we're to leave the church for any reason, we're committing that we'll join another church. Because Christians are meant to be in community. We belong to a body. So we're committed here until we're committed somewhere else. So, so that's, that's the covenant of fellowship. I want you to feel the weight of it, but I also want you to be excited about being able to say it together next week. We get, we get to declare that we are a new community. Changed by the gospel. A city on a hill declaring together the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. Too many people today think of church as some sort of production that I show up to and enjoy. The covenant reminds us that we're a body of people together pursuing Christ. Too many people today think of church as some sort of civic club where we get together to connect with others in a charitable atmosphere. This covenant reminds us that we're yoked together in a spiritual bond serving Christ together. Too many today think of church as some sort of building or institution that we just file in and out of. This covenant reminds us that church is a living organism made up of people who have been changed by the gospel. What a beautiful thing then that we get to affirm that next week. But what's even more beautiful is we get to affirm it this week around this table. This is something man-made. It's a way to try and flesh out right thinking in our midst. This before us is something Christ has given us. It says anyone who's been changed by the gospel, let's do this regularly together to break bread together to show that we belong to Christ. So uh, I'm going to invite the elders forward and I'm going to pray as we move to the table. Father, we've heard a sermon about who we are as a church and especially our unity. So we pray that not only as we think about affirming the covenant next week, but as we think about taking the bread and the cup today, We do so with a full sense of the weight of who we are, what you've made us. The power of Christ has taken this diverse people and united us together, taken people dead in their sins and made us alive. And may we rejoice in that together. In Christ's name, amen.